Warning. The following broadcast is not approved by your teacher, university, politician, or government. Side effects may include skepticism, better reasoning skills, liberty, peace, and an escape from the woke. Welcome to the show. I am your host, L.B. Moniz, and this is the Been Awake Podcast for Better Sense Making. If you are within the sound of my voice and you haven't visited beenawake.com slash subscribe, it's time to level up your reality. Welcome back. Welcome for the first time. Thank you so much for spending this time with me. I do appreciate it immensely. We're going to go through the week at beenawake.com. We're going to end on a very powerful video from a mother standing up for her children. And I have said it before. I don't know what this looks like for you, but it is a time to stand. It is a time to be counted. It is a time to stand up for what is right. And if you're in a place where that's just not an option for you, I understand that. I do. Do me a favor. Throw me some bones over at binawake.com slash subscribe. Join the mission, level up your reality, and make it so that I can bring the mission of better sense making to more people. I got a bonus episode coming out tomorrow for premium subscribers. Those will be done weekly. So it's right now, it's $48 a year or five bucks a month. That's a 50% off discount forever because you're good enough to support me now before this turns into something that's unstoppable. And it's already unstoppable. <laughs> so Monday, Monday's post over at beenawake.com. I asked the question, is leaving Afghanistan the right decision where empires go to die? If you didn't know, the U.S. signed a peace deal with the Taliban, who, by the way, never attacked the United States before the government and before our government invaded. So it's, 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 a, it's a little known historical fact, I think, for most people today, especially considering the fact that Afghanistan is one of the longest wars in American history. And it's um, you know, basically been waged my entire life. And yet, the, one of the you know, groups that we're supposedly fighting against never attacked the United States, the Taliban. Now, given that you're listening to this show, and you understand what better sense making is, you can understand that sometimes we need to hold two ideas in our minds simultaneously. So just because the Taliban never attacked us doesn't mean that the greatest people. It also doesn't mean that they're the worst form of government in Afghanistan or the worst elements of the culture in Afghanistan. See, these things are complicated. And you have wrongly trusted the politicians all this time saying that there was a good reason for us to be there when in fact they knew they know very well that there isn't but let's keep reading the piece in you know so so we we signed a peace deal with the taliban in february of 2020 in it the united states committed to withdrawing its troops within 14 months i do have by the way as you might imagine i have the entire agreement linked at benawake.com in this piece if you wanted to read it, but here is part one, just so we're all clear. 
The United States, it goes, the United States is committed to withdraw from Afghanistan all military forces of the United States, its allies and coalition partners, including all non-diplomatic civilian personnel, private security contractors, trainers, advisors, and supporting services personnel within 14 months following announcement of this agreement and will take the following measures in this regard. And they go on and, you know, kind of label some stuff. 14 months from February 29th of 2020, which is when this, which is when the deal was publicized, should equal a total U.S. withdrawal by April 29th, 2020. As of my recording this, that is six days away. When I wrote it, it was a week and a half away. If you didn't know, we're not going to honor that agreement. Joe Biden is now saying we won't get out until September, I think. But let me ask you a question. In your personal life, do you trust someone when they never follow through? This isn't a matter of somebody being forgetful, mind you. Every now and then we're all forgetful. I'm a forgetful person, honestly, <laughs> my nature. I'm something of, um, well, the phrase absent-minded professor comes to mind, even though I'm not a I'm not an official professor by anyone's estimation, as I as the intro music declares. The what I say is not approved by your professor or university. How about in business? Would you trust a store that charges you for a product you never receive? Would you shop there again? In other words, have you ever had the experience where someone did not honor their word? In your personal and business life, I would hope that this is a rare occurrence. The adage goes, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. And this exists as sage advice. You should really take it. In politics, however, not keeping your word often is how you rise to the top. Democracy means, in part, while the structure of government doesn't change, the actors at the top of that structure do. If domestic law is not what is written down, but what is enforced, then what good are international treaties? Let me read that again. Democracy means, in part, while the structure of government does not change, the actors, and I use that word purposefully, the actors at the top of that structure do. If domestic law is not what is written down, but what is enforced, then what are international treaties good for? One examination of history could rightly take the view that foreign relations are one side continuously going back on their words after signing some kind of document. I'm currently reading James Burnham, Burham's The Machiavellians and grappling with the point that the person who is most likely to succeed in politics is the one most likely to lie or be deceitful. But I'll have to, I'll have to save more of that for another time. I go through the exercise of having you consider your personal and professional relationships to point out that while there was a solid agreement in place, under President Trump in particular, this was something that he, uh, this was something that he, um, you know, that he put together and that he instructed somebody to go out and do, I can't remember the gentleman's name, who negotiated on, on behalf of the United States. But I go through this exercise of having you consider your personal and professional, professional relationships to point out that while there was a solid agreement in place, 14 months to withdraw, President Joe Biden, our dear leader, has decided to extend that deadline past 
the original date. Now he's citing September of 2021. We've discussed the ideas of different moral cultures in the pages of beenawake.com before. Put simply, there are honor, dignity, and now victim moral cultures with fleshed out norms that exist simultaneously and within different parts of the world. Largely speaking, my understanding is that Afghanistan still has a very strict honor culture where a man's word ought to be his bond. And a signed treaty, therefore, means even more. How do we do things with words? What are we doing when we put words down on a piece of paper? What am I doing, you know, speaking, writing, and speaking? I'm trying to do something of meaning, of note. Arguably, that's what they were trying to do with the peace treaty with the Taliban, to end a war on some sort of, on some sort of front. And we are, when we signed a treaty with a culture who largely believes that a word should be bond, and therefore a treaty would mean even more. In the world of geopolitics, such a mentality will become a problem, mentality that a man's word should be his bond, that is. From our position in the USA, 20 years into a war we never should have fought, I can understand how the average American would shrug their shoulders and say, what's five more months? We can just pull out eventually. I don't agree, mind you, but I can understand that position. In the world of a Taliban leader, literally fighting for control over a country that he thinks he should rule, because that's what the Taliban is doing, mind you. They fight, they, they have, they control certain, Afghanistan as such, by the way, this nation state of Afghanistan has never existed, except in maps. It doesn't exist within the minds of the people the way that the United States of America does, for example. Or even, interesting to note, if we're going to talk about the Middle East, even to the extent to which Iran does. See, Iran has more of a solid, solidified nation state than the Afghanis do. If, this is largely a Western construct that's put over these people. So the Taliban leader is fighting for control against the Kabul, you know, the, for the, the U.S.-backed Kabul government. And part of this agreement was that they were going to have to come to peace with them as well. And of course, they're also fighting in especially the rural areas, you know, more traditional tribal elder leaders, so on and so forth. It's very, very complicated stuff. So from our position, though, in the USA, 20 years into a war we never should have fought, I get how the average American is going to shrug their shoulders and say, what's five more months? But for the Taliban leader, who is literally fighting for control over a country he believes that he should rule. I, I, I don't know a ton about the Taliban. I do know that they are you know, fundamentalists in a religious sense. And so they believe that they are instituting Allah's will. They are doing God's work. They are doing holy work by what they were doing, right? And part of this, by the way, it's like making sure that men don't shave and, and also that you can't trim your beard. I have a nicely coiffed beard, if you didn't know. I, you know, I, I, I make sure it looks real nice, but that's actually against some um, more fundamentalist interpretations of Islam. Interesting to note, amongst many other things. But so, this, but so the Taliban leaders literally believe, or at the very least claim to believe, that they are doing this for the sake of Allah. They are doing this for God. And, and then we just, you know, we said, hey, by the way, we're going to come to peace with you, and we're going to do it, you know, in all the ways and give you the things you need. And now we're saying, oh, it's going to be five more months. So for this Taliban, for the Taliban leadership, 
this is could be perceived and likely will be perceived as a violation of their deepest sensibilities. This will be, I, I, I have to think that, and we'll see how the, we'll see how the next few months play out. Right. I could be wrong. I hope I'm wrong. I hope that by the end of 2021, American troops are home that we no longer have a military presence in Afghanistan. That is my hope, but I do not deal in hope. I don't deal in hope when it comes to foreign relations, when it comes to the war on terror. People who oppose the imperial power of the United States government, and it is an empire, will rightly point out that the United States has never withdrawn fully from a nation it once occupied. There are still active military bases in places like Germany, Japan, Korea, etc. Hell, we have one in Cuba, Guantanamo Bay. In preparation for this piece, I went to the ever-principled ever antiwar.com where they had this headline, Taliban, U.S. violating signed peace deal with recent airstrikes in Afghanistan. And then there was this gem. And this gem is a piece, that re- the headline of which reads, Pentagon is unclear if contractors will leave Afghanistan. So let's read the quote. So the contractors, we don't know exactly. This is a quote. There are some preliminary plans, and clearly the goal is to get all our personnel out, and I suspect that contractors will be a part of that. But whether there will still need to be, whether there will still be a need for some contractor support, I just don't know, he said. The U.S. plans to continue supporting the Afghan military and Air Force. Since the bulk of the maintenance for these armed forces is performed by U.S. contractors, there is a good chance the Pentagon will justify a continued presence of private contractors. Now, that is a quote from the Pentagon spokesperson, John Kirby. It would seem that the powers that be would prefer to waste your hard-earned dollars in a war that has no meaning rather than bring the troops home. While you have no real choice in how your tax dollars are spent, you will pay the price of not honoring an agreement made with the people who expect debts to be paid. See, we're already doing airstrikes in Afghanistan in violation of the treaty. But we said, hey, don't worry, man, we're going to pull out in a few months. Just just for right now, for right now, we're going to stay there. But in a few months, we'll pull out. Don't worry. But in that few months, we're going to do airstrikes against your targets. What, what's, what do you think that's going to do to the Taliban fighters, to the Taliban generals and lieutenants and whatever the equivalent is in their, in their groups? Hmm? You think it might piss them off? Do you think that? Do you think it might upset members of the Taliban that the U.S., first off, didn't pull out when they said they were going to. And secondly, then just started bombing the crap out of them again. Do you think that might upset a couple members of the Taliban? Do you think, do you think that it might upset a couple members of the Taliban so much that they might, you know, take a, they might, they might attack U.S. troops in Afghanistan. You think? That might happen. You think that's possible? That after reneging on an agreement, fighters in the Taliban would, you know, would ambush, let's say, a U.S. patrol? You think that's likely? Do you think that's possible between now and September? I, I'll do you one better. Did you know? that the Pentagon has already signed defense contract, has already signed for mercenaries to go to Afghanistan 
through 2023. There are signed contracts with defense, with defense agencies that promise payment through 2023. Which, which contract do you think will be honored? <laughs> do you think the treaty will be honored? Or do you think the defense contractors contract will be honored? Moreover, let's say they bring all the troops home. Are they going to have some kind of extra payment, some remuneration? I think that's highly likely. Why? Because war is the health of the state. Government can only take from you. They can only kill you or imprison you. That's all they can do. Government does not create as such. Want evidence of this? How about the fact that when we were talking about dealing with the coronavirus and the lockdowns and so on, they called it a war. All government knows how to do is wage war. War is the only government program. And war is what we can continue to expect in Afghanistan because that is where an empire goes to die. On Tuesday, I wrote a piece on the nature of second thoughts. Um, this, is, this is kind of like a little meditation. I don't know. This is something that's been rattling around in my brain, so I kind of thought I'd get it out. We'll see kind of where it goes for us today. There's been an idea knocking itself about in my brain that I figured I would get out here. There may be more to say about this in the future. There is always more to say, but I have been struck recently on the significance or perhaps insignificance on the nature of second thoughts. I wonder if anyone has ever attempted to quantify how many thoughts one has in a day. Certainly. There have been measures of words said, written, and so on. Yet thoughts, in that they are ephemeral, are perhaps still outside of what we can measure. My point here is to notice that without defining the idea of second thoughts, you likely have an idea of what I mean. And you understand that second thoughts are not a linear observation. For a passing definition, let us say that a second thought is a re-examination of a previously held idea or notion about a person, place, thing, event, or idea. Most often, at least in my understanding, we use such a phrase as it relates to people. But let's go a different direction to begin. Many will belabor the point that today we have virtually instant access to the information and entertainment our hearts could desire. One consequence of this is that from many stories, you will be given a hot take or a quick, reflexive, and often incendiary comment on an otherwise complex story. Let's take platforms like Twitter out of the equation for a moment. Consider instead that every headline is a certain kind of hot take. The cable news format and many other media centers also will provide hot takes in the form of analysis and coverage for a story, even when all the facts as such have not been assembled. We've talked about this with, uh, with mass shootings, for example. We've discussed this. Right, they, they, that they like to that places like CNN and Fox News that they want to they want to be purveyors of of smut, as it were, and that's what they do in the wake of tragedies. Is they 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 love the fact that it's going to bring people's eyeballs to their screen, and so they will opine and talk ad nauseum about such a subject 
to draw more eyeballs to the screen in the same way that a pornographer produces as much pornography as possible. Social media has reinforced this structure and most content creators seemingly don't care to dive into the depths of an issue, which is one of the reasons why I started beenawake.com. I started this space to try and dive deeper into complex topics and you'll have to let me know how I'm doing, won't you? There's nothing that will make me turn a comedy podcast off faster than listening to the hosts and their guests trying to stumble through a news story I've already read. An opinion that I disagree with isn't even the issue that I'm talking about. It's when they get pertinent issues, pertinent like facts of a case of a story completely wrong. Now, I don't fault a comedian for having a, a hot take, right? But I'll certainly have second thoughts about trusting their opinion, which is, by the way, a good, not just a good rule for comedian podcasters, but just a good rule of thumb for most people. So then. In a world of hot takes, we could argue that second thoughts not only are a good idea, but required if we want to engage in better sense-making. Why then do they have a negative connotation in the context of a relationship? See, chances are you've had second thoughts about somebody you were dating or friends with. The latter case, you know, if you're friends with somebody that has lower stakes, but in the dating world, second thoughts are a killer. Two people are involved in a relationship, yet only one person generally is the one having quote, second thoughts. Even if both individuals have them around the same time, it's generally not something you will address. You will address with your, with your significant other until you are ready to give your second thoughts a voice. At that point, it also it tends to be the end of things, right? We also never bother to quantify what the first thought was that the second thought is now replacing. As a single guy in the dating world, I'm often on the receiving end of second thoughts I'll never fully understand. Another consequence of the modern day is that dating has also become a series of hot takes. It's so easy to begin and cease contact with a person that ghosting has become the norm. And we're all guilty of this. I'm not going to pretend I'm some martyr. It's so easy. So easy. Moreover, Given that a new match is just around the corner, it's a lot easier for someone to have second thoughts before they even finish having the first one. When second thoughts sting, I think, is when they are not explained in full or when a less than stellar lie takes the place of an underlying truth. We do this, strangely enough, under the umbrella of not wanting to hurt someone unnecessarily. So here, so here we have a strange opposite effect of second thoughts. On the one hand, they are almost by definition better considering that a hot take or first thought is often not well you know, thought out. Sorry for using the word so much. And yet as a consequence, in the context of personal relationship, second thoughts are more likely to cause harm. And I end the piece by saying what strange creatures we are. So, I mean, um, just to stay on this point for a little bit, this, uh, this idea kind of came to me, you know, I was, when I was dating somebody recently um, and it, you know, it didn't work out. And also there's, uh, there was an episode of Star Trek that I was watching around the same time. And, it, you know, I'm a nerd like that. So in this particular episode of Star Trek, uh, Keiko is getting married to Miles, uh, Miles O'Brien. So she's like the, uh, and so, and they were introduced by Data, who's the android. And so Keiko 
has second thoughts, right? She gets cold feet the day of the wedding. And so she tells Data to break the news to Miles. And Data, being an android without emotions, says, well, if this is going to make her happy, then of course he's going to be gladdened by this. <laughs> so he goes, and in a very happy way, he says, hey, Keiko isn't going to marry you. She's having second thoughts. And so it's just this, there's just this weird thing, right? Because of course, in, in the context of a relationship, especially, it's not just that you're going to have only two thoughts about a person. You have many, un, un, frankly, probably unquantifiable amounts of thoughts as you get to know somebody else. We are making hundreds of decisions every single minute, hundreds of little judgments in our eyes in the way, you know, and that, that, that we don't even have full conscious control over sometimes. And moreover, unless you're somebody who looks closely for things, you might just be reflexively reacting to a situation. And so second thoughts seem to come out of nowhere. So I hope this doesn't come up. I, this is kind of just, like I said, this is something that's been like knocking its way in my brain. I don't really get it. It's kind of this like, what, what do we mean by second thoughts? Are they always better than the first thoughts? And what are those first thoughts? I don't know. I, I, I might write more about this if you guys find this interesting, but it's sometimes, sometimes I think things are kind of just worth pondering. Does that make sense? Sometimes it's worth just kind of meditating a little bit on an idea in the hopes that you can kind of reach a different understanding about something. And at least for me, as it relates to second thoughts, it kind of, um, I mean, I, I'd say when, you know, if in the dating sphere and in my personal and my friendships as well, I, I, and in my business and frankly, in everything I do, I try to live out that ethos of not lying. Right. It's, I might, truth is like history. The editor allowed it, but I'm, I try my hardest not to lie to people, especially people I care about and people that I want to have a relationship with. And what I've been struck by just in the dating world in general is how often relationships end on a lie. And that's what I'm getting at with the line that says like, you know, while second thoughts sting, I think it's, it's usually when, you know, like a less than stellar lie takes its place or they're not explained in full. I think it's easy. And again, like, I don't, I'm not speaking from a mountaintop here. I'm, I'm, I'm going through, I'm just literally processing things that I have, that I've done that have been done to me. There's, um, there's something to be said for the fact that like a lot of times I've just, I it's, it's uh, as a guy, especially, I think, or maybe, I don't know, maybe it's not a guy thing. Maybe it's a girl thing too. Women get broken up with, but it's often, often I'll get the excuse. One in particular I've gotten is, well, I'm just, I have so many things going on. Right. Like that's the, it's not even, so it's like, I just, I just don't think I have the time for a relationship right now. Like that, That's a lie. You have enough time in the day. It's just a question of whether you're willing to give that to another person. And for whatever reason, and not for whatever reason, because you don't want to hurt somebody, we're more likely to say something like, oh, I'm just really busy right now. I don't have the time for this. I've had multiple people cite my lifestyle because <laughs> I tend to be on the go, live a bit of a nomad life um, as being the reason why it's difficult. And that might be, that's probably in part true. 
but it's not the complete reason. But I'll never know. You'll never. And this is this is the nature of second thoughts as well as given what they are in the context of a relationship in particular, you never will exactly know what somebody else, why somebody else actually did what they did. I don't know. Worth thinking. So Wednesday's email that actually went down on Friday. But before we do that, let's go to Thursday's content recommendation. So I, um, so I had a busy real world week. Uh, but you know, and so like I'm recording the show a day late, I put out, uh, you know, I put out an article a day late. Um, I had the piece of premium content, which I already hit y'all up with. Um, but for today, the content recommendation, if you have any interest, I, um, I do want to maybe try and get this guy, RJ Youngling on the show after I read a couple of his pieces. But if you have an interest in sales in marketing and human behavior, I'd highly recommend you listen to this interview that I put out. Um, not that I put out that Jason Stapleton put out and that I'm reposting here um, because I frankly found it fascinating. He's like trying to create a science of entrepreneurship and he's doing a lot of that with behavioral science in that it relates to marketing. So don't hate what you do. Don't call it boring. There's a verbal dance we all do when meeting someone new. The steps can vary, but the motion is the same. At some point in this dance, we'll ask the question, what do you do? I can remember reading weak arguments long ago about how you shouldn't ask a question like that, that to do so might cause offense. That's kind of a silly point to make and that nobody would knowingly ask such a question to cause offense. In fact, it's a very safe question when you think about it. And the person who would take offense likely is looking for an excuse to be upset. Can I say that? I think if you are going to get upset at the fact that somebody in a general conversation, if you're just making small talk, asks you, what do you do or where are you from? That, you know, they're not trying to offend, but there's a lot of this leftist nonsense that gets kind of put on people. And I think, uh, it, you know, this is this also relates to the idea of victim culture as well, right? Because you can turn yourself into a victim. But what do you mean? What do I do? I'm not I'm not defined. <laughs> I'm not defined by the nature of my job, right? I'm not defined by that. I am so much more. I am so much more than what I do. And how dare you ask person I only met five minutes ago. So I, I do think that, you know, nobody's going to ask a question like that to cause offense. And if you would take offense at something like that, you're looking for an excuse to be upset and you should really examine your, who you are as a person. I can understand that not everyone is doing what they want quite yet, but when meeting someone for the first time, there's no shame in pivoting a conversation to what you wish to discuss, right? So if somebody asks what you do and listen, I've been there. I, I, I really like my job that I have now and I love doing this. But there was a time where I wasn't doing what I loved and I would still take pride in the job that I had. But then I would pivot the conversation to something else, you know, like what I was studying in school. Inevitably, and I'm guilty of this as well, in response to the question, what do you do? I noticed that people will give a couple sentences describing their job description and follow up their job description with some variation of, you know, boring stuff. What you do for employment doesn't define all that you are as a person, but it certainly is something you spend a lot of time doing. As such, it does define some of what you are. So no, no, notice that. It doesn't define all of what you are, but it certainly defines some of what you are. 
Once upon a time, the options in front of you were very limited. There weren't really options for most people to do what they wanted. In the internet age, however, especially in a country like the United States of America, I believe that you are largely limited by your own ambition and the people whose opinion you trust. In a place like America, you are largely limited by your own ambition and the people whose opinion you trust. Those are dangerous words, my friend. No matter how boring you think your job is, it matters. How can I possibly know such a thing? It's simple. If it didn't matter, nobody would pay for it. It could be where you are right now means you don't see the bigger picture, but in any business, there certainly is one. Some corporations will try to articulate this in a mission statement or something like that, but oftentimes mission statements ring like a damp cloth over a Liberty Bell. What you do for a living also matters to your family. Your parents, I'm sure, I would hope, want you to find success. Your spouse may rely on your income, and any children you have certainly do. Your purpose doesn't always have to come from the work per se, but what working affords you. When you dismiss what you do as boring, you are denying yourself joy. I'm not quite sure where this sentiment comes from, why, you know, why we call what we do boring or how it's taught, but I do think it should stop. If you're not where you want to be, that's a part of your narrative, and you can still take in your job. You can still take joy in your job. If you can't take joy, any joy in your job, you're probably working in the wrong field. Let me be clear, though. There's nothing easy about taking ownership of, over what you do and working towards your best self. And you might ask me, LB, is it worth it? Well, I would say the struggle is, but I'll have to let you know whether the result is when I reach the top of what I'm doing. The last thing I want to share with you guys today, and don't forget, you have a uh, there is a there is an extra forty minutes of content being released, um, being released as well this week. That is uh, for you premium subscribers, and I am offering a lifetime fifty percent off discount. For anybody who would subscribe, that's five bucks a month. Very, very reasonable if you ask me. And I will never, I will never offer a lifetime discount like that again. So that's going to, that's between now and the one year anniversary of beenawake.com. We're going to end today. We're going to end today with the words of a mother in Georgia. And, you know, I've said this before, but I think now is a time to stand. And this woman certainly did. Every month I come here and I hear the same thing, social emotional health. If you truly mean that, you would end the mask requirement tonight. Tonight. This is not March 2020 anymore. We have three vaccines. Every adult in the state of Georgia that wants that vaccine is eligible to get it right now. And every one of us knows that young children are not affected by this virus. They're not. And that's a blessing. But as the adults, what have we done with that blessing? We've shoved it to the side and we've said, we don't care. You're still going to wear a mask on your face every day, five and six-year-olds. You still can't play together on the playground like normal children, seven and eight-year-olds. We don't care. We're still going to force you to carry a burden that was never yours to carry. Shame on us. 
My six-year-old looks at me every month before I come here, and she says, are you going to tell them tonight? Tell them I don't want to wear this anymore. And I say, baby, it's not time to fight that battle yet. I try to explain that there's so many things, but it's April 15th, 2021, and it's time. Take these masks off of my child. And I know what I'm going to be met with. But Ms. Taylor, the CDC, we did not vote for people at the CDC. We did elect leaders who do create policy. We elected the five of you. We chose you to make difficult decisions for our children. We chose you to make decisions that would be in our children's best interest in forcing five, six, seven, eight, and nine-year-old little children to cover their noses and their mouths where they breathe for seven hours a day, every day for the last nine months for a virus that you know doesn't affect them. That is not in their best interest. And this has to stop. Defend our children. My six-year-old can't come up here and say this. It has to stop. Take these off of our children. What can I say better than that? I would only add to what she said by, um, by, just, by just bringing up a very... I just bringing up a very real thing, right? Can I bring up a real thing to end this out? You know, there's a lot of, um, there are a lot of conversations about what you should do. What's the best way to fight for Liberty. You know, different people have different answers to that. Some people want to work inside of the system. Some people want to leave the system, but they're, there definitely is one thing we can agree on. If we're not standing and fighting for our children, then we're not doing shit. If you like what you heard today, go to beenawake.com to subscribe for future updates. My name is L.B. Muniz, and I am not one with the woke.